Welcome to Everyday Wellness Podcast. I'm your host, nurse practitioner, Cynthia Thurlow. This podcast is designed to educate, empower, and inspire you to achieve your health and wellness goals. My goal and intent is to provide you with the best content and conversations from leaders in the health and wellness industry each week and impact over a million lives. Today, I had the honor of connecting with Maria Claps and Kristen Johnson. They are plain spoken friends and practitioners who share a passion for women's health, especially women's health at midlife. Today, we dove deep into their backgrounds and helping to change the cultural narrative around aging for women, secrecy, and shame. We talked about some of the changes that occur in middle age, including changes in metabolic homeostasis, in our metabolism, muscle, immune function, and brain health. The need for changes in nutrition, especially increases in protein and a reduction in carbohydrates, the need for strength training, as well as zone two training, the role of HRT mistakes they commonly see in navigating not only HRT, but also supplementation and the importance of testing. I hope you will enjoy this empowering podcast as much as I did enjoy recording it. Well, ladies, it is such a pleasure to have Maria back again and have you, Kristen. I know that there's been a lot of interest in having us connect and talk about the amazing work that you both are doing to help empower women in perimenopause and menopause and beyond. So welcome. Thank Thank you you so much. I'm very excited to be back. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And so for listeners, this is a fun fact. Back when Kelly and I co-hosted the podcast in 2018, we had Maria as one of our very first guests. If you go back to episode 12, that's when Maria, you know, kind of shared her whole story, but Maria's story, Kristen's story, my story are all very great examples of what most women experience, even women that are smart and articulate and are able to identify what they're going through, the traditional narrative still negates what we experience north of 40 years old. So I'd love for you both to kind of share a little bit about your story so we can kind of start the conversation there. And then we'll kind of dive into what we were just talking about before I hit record. Yeah. So the story of how I kind of came to do this work, Cynthia. Yes. But your calling, yeah. this is your calling. Yeah, it is. It does feel like a calling. So I was kind of early forties ish. I would say about 43. And I just started to really feel very different physically, emotionally, mentally. And I sought out a help of what I, I thought was a pretty good doctor. And I'm not here to put him down in New York city. He had written several books. He was on lower park Avenue. I believe my doctor's visit was December 26th. So if you've been in Manhattan on December 26th, you'll know it's kind of crazy, hard to get a cab, but that's how desperate I was. So went to the office. It was very much an awakening and he helped in certain areas. But here's the big takeaway was I got like the fire hose of information. He interestingly, now remember I was 43. He ended up prescribing HRT for me, full HRT, like estrogen and progesterone and ton of supplements, very little to really no education as to what was happening in my body. So, you know, I did everything he said and I got somewhat better, but he mixed in some 
potentially really dangerous remedies in there. And one of that was clonopin. And I got a little bit hooked on that. I ended up getting unhooked. I unhooked myself. I didn't get like that hooked in, but I probably used it for close to a year. I was able to unhook myself. Thank God it was a really tiny dose, but still not, you know, just not really great. And I just came away from that thinking that there has to be a better way. And it's, that's just when I pursued a deeper education. Yeah. I think, you know, your story is certainly so commonly expressed. I mean, probably in your DMs and my DMs, people that write about the podcast explaining their experiences in late thirties, early forties. And it's not to suggest that there aren't people that benefit from, you know, early progesterone therapies or things like that. But I think this kind of traditional one size fits all mindset is hugely problematic in a lot of different ways. And Kristen, I would imagine, I know you were a competitive athlete, you are a high powered attorney. So you had a lot of stress, you know, yeah. stress from the exercise stress at your, at work. I think we're all moms of all boys, which I think yes. is, you know, we share that in, in common as well, but what was your process like coming to terms with peri- the changes in your bodies and in your body and perimenopause? Yeah. So I didn't really have any idea of what it was. And the reason why is because my mom had a complete hysterectomy at 32. So I didn't see her go through. And it was honestly after my birth, she never, she went from the cesarean to the surgical room to have this C-section. And so looking back, I can now recall some of the pains and things that she had. She actually was one of the women who was on HRT during the WHI and had it abruptly withdrawn. And, you know, that cascaded in a whole bunch of problems for her, bilateral breast cancer and a few other things. But I didn't have any hint that this was hormonal driven. But as you said, I was very high achieving and I had a lot going on in my life and I started to sort of stumble and it was the fatigue and the exhaustion, the foggy brain. Like I joked that I needed lists to tell me where my list was for the day. I could not get through anything. Definitely saw the libido change, sleep disruption in a way that I think I actually still have some PTSD over this like sleep disruption that I went through and it didn't help. I was getting up at 4.30 in the morning to go row and do other things, but I just kind of went from being able to do everything to really struggle to do anything and went to my doctor. I was living in Boston at the time. It was kind of the epicenter of big medicine. I thought these, these will be the people they'll help me. And I had a woman and she was from India and she took a very holistic approach with various things. So I was completely confident that she would be able to say, this is what's up. Instead, she gaslit me and she looked at me and said, you're too young. I like Maria, I was 43. We joke that 43 is like this magic age for the bottom to start falling out. But she looked at me and she wouldn't even do any blood testing. She wouldn't do anything and looked at me and said, you're too young. And even if it is, we can put you on the pill. Just, you know, this is not an issue. And I said, no, something's wrong with me. I'm not the person I used to be. And went back to her so frequently that she finally yelled at me and said, you know, you've been back here like four times in the last six months for blood tests. There's nothing wrong with you. And I mean, I was begging, I'm like, do I have Lyme disease? Is this autoimmune? Like something is wrong. So I got the opposite of what Maria did. I got nothing given to me, not even testing and was sent on my merry way. And, you know, being a bit of a questioner in terms of my personality and being an attorney, I like to research. And I just started diving into this and realized, no, there is something changing. It's not necessarily wrong. It's just not optimal. And it's difficult to support the life I was living with these issues that were going on without some other intervention. So that too is kind of how 
you know, I came to this, I think both Marie and I were driven by maybe a little undercurrent of anger and frustration and, you know, started to really just educate and figure out what is going on. And, and as we started to work with clients in our nutrition and health practice, it was, these women were having the same issues over and over. And, you know, they felt heard when the two of us could say, this is okay. You know, this is normal. It's not optimal, but it's normal. And so, you know, then we kind of continue to deepen the education piece, because like you said, every woman's different, you know, it's not a one size fits all, but I think we can cover all the bases probably between the three of us in terms of how it's gone. Absolutely. And that pain to purpose. I mean, I think for each one of us, if we reflect on, I think I was 44 or 45 when I hit the wall and I really hit a wall. And I remember going in to see my GYN and her remark to me was, it just so happened that day I went there, my cycle had started and it was very heavy. And I was telling her this and she did a physical exam and she was like, oh my God, this is really heavy. And I said, I've been telling you that. And she said, okay, we can fix this. We can put you on the pill. We can do an IUD. We can do an ablation. And, and you know, you're probably not going to have any more kids. So if you want, we can just do a, a partial hysterectomy. And I was like, time out. No way. <laughs> I knew enough by that point that those things weren't going to fix the problem. And she was aghast that I wasn't willing to consider one of those four methodology. But when we think about traditional allopathic medicine, that's really, we address symptoms. We're not looking at the root cause. And do you suspect for all of us, and I say all of us as a community of women, that there's a degree of secrecy and shame and discomfort about the aging process that probably drives some of this lack of awareness, lack of, you know, our healthcare professionals talking to us, preparing us for when this is going to happen. Because I know even practicing or training OBGYNs get very little training about menopause and very few of them go on to specialize in this area. And so do you suspect that this, the shame and the secrecy piece is worsening or, or adding to this issue for women? I do. I think, you know, a lot of our worth is tied to our, you know, fertility. And I think that, you know, it's, I mean, gosh, it's even reinforced in Hollywood. I'm like the most beautiful of the beautiful people, you know, they tend to stop getting roles at around 40 or 45. And it's funny, I was reading an article yesterday and uh, the author was, I believe, quoting a celebrity who said, well, that kind of ageism in Hollywood has maybe, you know, lessened a bit, but that's probably because we have the ability to like look younger than we are. And I thought that was like a really very interesting, you know, kind of thoughtful, you know, just something to consider. So yeah, I absolutely do. It's just, uh, you know, Madison Avenue has predicated that, you know, youth and dewy skin and, you know, again, ability to be fertile, to be, you know, just what we always want to aim for. That's pretty sad, actually. Yeah, I think too that, you know, it's one thing when we're new moms, we can stand at the bus stop and talk to our girlfriends or, you know, go and have book club or play bunco or whatever. And we can share kind of these common things that we're going through as we're raising children and growing in our marriages and whatnot. But when your vagina gets dry and sex becomes painful, that's not a topic that comes up at book club. It's not a topic that comes up at the bus stop. And we do feel broken, right? I mean, we feel like we have failed in some way if we're not able to love having sex with our husband. It Forget the fact that it's painful and uncomfortable or that maybe we don't have the same lubrication and we wonder like, Do I not like him as much as I used to? You know, like we start to question these things as though we are to blame. And I think that's where the shame piece comes in is that 
we stop talking to these women in this community that we all share and we become very insular and it becomes sort of whispered concerns at the doctor's office, if you even raise it at all. And then you're met with, you know, a variety of things, which is either here's some sleeping pills and some lube, or here's, you know, for Maria, a 30,000 supplements or for Kristen, nothing's wrong with you. Get over it yourself. And that piece of it, I think just absolutely feeds this very uncomfortable experience physically to be incredibly uncomfortable emotionally. And, you know, it's hard. I mean, even our partners will be like, what's wrong with you? Cause maybe you're extra bitchy or something, you know? And you're like <laughs> thinking to yourself, like, I don't know what's wrong with me, you know, but you can't say that we get defensive or we feel like we did something bad. So it's tough. Yeah. It's a tough time of life. And I think, you know, we're all forgetting that at the same time, most of us are raising teenagers around this time and they're not loving us often. (laughs) We're not the most popular person in our households. Let's put it that way. So between, you know, changes in the bedroom, changes in our mood, changes in our appearance, and then changes in our interpersonal relationships, it's just not a fun time. Oh, I just can't tell you how timely that comment is. I have two teenage boys one of whom who gives me the bro hug, like every night he, I get a bro hug, which I'm, I've now kind of acquiesced. So this is my new normal. And my 15 year old is very mercurial. I mean, his <laughs> mood is, he's either happy or he's pissed at the world. And I'm usually the person that gets the brunt of it. I'm not quite sure why, but last night or two nights ago, he was in the pantry and he was trying to pick out something to eat. Cause of course it's, you know, second dinner, third dinner. Uh, you didn't you feed both him un- enough. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> which, you know, I know you both understand with boys. And I remember saying to him, I was like, okay, I'm going to bed. Uh, give me a hug. And he was like, no, I don't feel like giving you a hug. And I said, well, just give me like a bro hug. He's like, no, I don't feel like giving you a hug. Why do I have to get, it was like, and then it becomes this argument. And I just said, buddy, every night, before I go to bed, I've always given you a hug. I was like, hug my arm. Is that less offensive? And and we're having this whole conversation in the pantry. And for women listening, if you've been through this with your teenagers or your kids, boy, it is really like, you have to take it back. It's like, okay, I need to respect the fact that he doesn't want to do this, even though it's pretty benign, but also understanding like my relationship with my, my boys is shifting because they're getting more independent they're getting more outspoken. You know, my poor husband sitting back and trying to watch this. He's like, I'm not sure if I should say anything or just stay out of it. And the acknowledgement that, you know, all those little snuggly moments that you have when your kids are younger, that doesn't last forever. It doesn't mean, and Maria, I know that your boys are a little older now. Maybe it comes back around, like maybe they become better huggers, but it's that oxytocin hit that you get from connecting with your loved ones that you you start to realize like, I need to find other ways to get this because the things, the fallback mechanisms are shifting and changing much like everything does in parenting. That's yeah, it. it's, it feels it's like an interesting loss. journey. Yeah. And I think Marie and I, we both have kids that are older. And this weekend, for example, my middle one came home all the way from California for 60 hours. Okay. That was it. He's in the armed forces. So he wasn't able to take a lot of time off. And I didn't drive him back to the airport. My husband did. And my husband came home and he said, wow. And I said, what? And he said, I was told I never have appreciated my family more than this weekend. And I'm so thankful for all of you. And I'm like, okay, A, that's great to hear, but like B, what a 
killed me to hear it. You know? <laughs> like, Aww. why could you say that when he was walking out the door? You know, like Aww. saved it for dad in the car ride. But yeah, they do become more appreciative later on. It's just yeah. this is a tough time. And when you feel like you're losing your body, your relationships changing, and then you're watching these things that you're launching into the world start to detach from you, it's yeah. a bit of a gut punch. So absolutely. Today's podcast is sponsored by NutriSense. It combines cutting-edge technology and human expertise so you can see how your body responds to different types of nutrition, stress, exercise, sleep, and where you are in your menstrual cycle in real time. And by pairing a continuous glucose monitor with their app and expert nutritional guidance, NutriSense can help you reach your health goals. And the best part is it's not just a program where they send you the CGM and you have to figure it out on your own. Each subscription plan includes one month of free expert nutritionist support. Your nutritionist will work with you one-on-one interpreting your data and providing customized advice to help you reach your health goals. The last time I had my CGM on, my registered dietitian and I troubleshooted over some specific concerns that I had. And whether you're aiming to lose weight, stabilize your energy, or just feel better overall, NutriSense offers the guidance and support you need. And lasting sustainable change takes time and can be achieved through a longer term subscription. That's why I encourage my patients and clients to consider three, six, or 12-month subscriptions where it's actually less expensive and allows you to not only achieve your goals, but also to ensure that you stick to your healthy lifestyle for the long term. As I've mentioned before, I have found the CGMs I've used through NutriSense to be incredibly insightful, specifically to carbohydrate tolerance. I would not have known that plantains spiked my blood sugar without this information. It's also been hugely helpful for tailoring to workouts and sleep quality. And so for me, even though I am metabolically healthy, I find the insights to be particularly helpful to tailor my lifestyle changes to my blood sugar. Visit NutriSense.io slash EWP and use the code EWP for $30 off plus one month of free nutritionist support. Be sure to let them know you're a listener of the Everyday Wellness Podcast when they ask you how you heard about them. This is one of my favorite ways to take care of my health and one of my top recommendations for all of my patients and clients. Mighty Maca is a superfood drink mix full of 30 plus natural ingredients, and it was formulated by Dr. Anna Kabeca during her healing journey. Mighty Maca Plus ingredients, which include nourishing ingredients like organic maca powder, turmeric, quercetin, broccoli, parsley, trans resveratrol, pomegranate extract, and more were carefully selected for immune support to sustain energy, provide mental clarity, and improve recovery. It also tastes delicious. It supports healthy detoxification and alkalinity in the body, balances hormones, fights free radicals, and neutralizes lactic acid, all while increasing your energy and vitality. It helps improve your digestion and reignites your libido. It's a powerful superfood drink mix that needs to be part of your daily routine. And Dr. Anna is offering my listeners 10% off your first purchase by using the link DrAnna.com slash Cynthia. That's 10% off your first per that's 10% off your first purchase by using the link DrAnna.com slash Cynthia. It's delicious and nutritious. Let's talk about some of the changes that are going on in our bodies in you know late 30s, early 40s. 
I think it's important to have context because the rest of our conversation will stem from this. This explains the symptoms. This explains, you know, why you start becoming weight loss resistant, which so many questions about weight loss resistance, which I'm sure we'll unpack. But I, I think kind of starting the conversation there, I think will be really invaluable. I mean, so the brain directs our hormones. And so many times we just think about like, well, we need to, you know, we, we think about our hormones, right? But it's really like that brain connection to the hormones. So for whatever reason, that starts to become a little bit disconnected. And progesterone, well, I always like to say, it's probably DHEA that started falling first, right? We've got that whole adrenal issue happening, but it's progesterone. Let's start with progesterone. That falls and estrogen fluctuates. And Kristen and I believe that estrogen, you know, fluctuates at even a lower level than say it did in your twenties, thirties like that. And, you know, that has impacts, but women are often very like kind of concerned about being high estrogen. And that's very, very rarely the case. And we always tell women, you know, if it is the case, it's super temporary. It's they're on their way out. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So as these hormones are changing, I mean, what I think, you know, to even go back further, we, we, as women think of our hormones as driving our menstrual cycle, driving our fertility, Mm -hmm. but at the end of the day, they're actually driving complete metabolic homeostasis in the body. And we don't appreciate that. So we don't understand or anticipate that as we start to lose those hormones, we're losing that metabolic homeostasis. And how does that, you know, manifest becomes really relevant because we've all just shared, you know, we feel like all this change is happening and some of it's very obvious and some of it's not so much, right? But women might not realize that maybe that anxiety you developed in your mid forties was actually declining hormones. Maybe, you know, you lost a parent and it stemmed from that and then, you know, it escalated, but it is this loss of homeostasis. So our metabolism is changing. Our ability to metabolize carbohydrates in particular is changing. Our muscle is declining. Our immune system is slowing. Our brain function is changing. Like all of these things are happening driven by, as Maria just described, the declining fluctuating hormones that we've always just attributed to fertility. It's not just that. So, you know, this is why we say to women, it's totally normal what is happening. Your body isn't broken. You know, it's not failing you. It's just, we have this senescence kind of on the horizon and on that horizon sits these changes and they're going to happen. So body composition changes. We see women really going hard with that mentality of calories in calories out or, you know, cringed all weekend long when we're seeing people hit the gym, like I earned my turkey and we're like, uh, that's not really how we want to think about it, (laughs) you know, but so as these shifts start to happen, even maybe before a cycle change, women in their late thirties and forties are like, wait a minute, all of a sudden I'm getting softer. What's happening. So they start doing more cardio and they start eating plant-based and, you know, they're changing all these things that unfortunately are interventions that make it worse. And that's one of the things that frustrates women a lot because they're like, I'm doing it so hard. I'm doing it so well. I'm doing it better than I've ever done it. And it's not helping or it's getting worse. And that's where we want to say to women, that's your hormones. You know, that's, it's difficult for them to think that belly fat is going to be, you know, an estrogen issue of decline, not an estrogen issue of excess. So I think it's a really important, you know, qualifier because we've been conditioned as women that if we restrict, so if we, you know, dial back on calories, if we work out harder and generally it's not lifting weights, it's the, you know, the 
Orange Theory Fitness, sorry, people, CrossFit, really intense exercise in perimenopause and menopause. And then I see a lot of women that start over restricting in terms of not only their nutrition, but they start fasting. And they think if a little bit of fasting is good, then more is better. If a little bit of food is good, then less is better. If a little bit of exercise is good, then more is better. And so I start to see this triad and trying to explain to women that actually the over-exercising and over-restriction is actually making things worse and trying to dial back on all that kind of dieting methodology. All of us are old enough to have lived through. I mean, I used to tell patients in the beginning, you just need to exercise more and eat less. Like that was the prevailing garbage nonsense that I was taught that I talked about for years till I knew better. And I, I think for a lot of people, it's very hard, whether it's cognitive dissonance, it's really hard to work through like, oh, wait, you want me to walk outside and and go lift weights? Wait, you actually want me to eat more protein? Like these things are really different. And the other side of that is that people assume one thing is gonna fix it all. And I just keep telling them the game has changed. All of a sudden we're really at the beck and call of our hormones. Yeah. Yeah. And the sleep disruption doesn't help. I mean, I think that's something that we kind of all overlook. And some of it is definitely driven by lifestyle choices, right? We're on devices, we're staying up too late, we're not kind of honoring this horrible early sunset, <laughs> all these things that are happening. But if we started to really tap into that circadian rhythm and prioritize and optimize our sleep, women would be shocked that sometimes they don't even need to make a whole ton of changes. If they just started sleeping, the weight loss resistance would lighten up a little bit. And that's something that we see, you know, frequently with women is the not sleeping or the waking up all night to pee and things like that. There's ways to address it, but honestly, it's really low hanging fruit that sometimes women are overlooking in exchange for all of those other things, which is the over restriction. And, you know, we'll tell women all the time, like you need to eat, you need to eat more. You need to eat a lot more protein. Mm. (laughs) And they just look at us with fear, like absolute Uh terror that, but if I eat more, I'm going to gain weight. And we're like, I know that's a theory, but we need to unlearn that. And we've seen it, Maria. I mean, we'll bump women up to, you know, sometimes 50% more calories than what they were eating. And all of a sudden they're like, I lost 10 pounds. And we're like shocked. Or or they just feel overall better. Like we get like a lot of responses are, I just feel like, you know, women that are really tuned in, like my blood sugar is balanced and my cravings are down and I'm I don't have to eat all the time. Yeah. I don't have to eat all the time. And it's like when they can actually trust us and break through to that other side, they have some pretty significant changes. Yeah. Yeah. I do find the protein thing is for many women mind blowing because I know anytime my team and I create content, we get so many questions well, how am I supposed to eat hundred grams of protein a day? I'm only eating 40. And I'm like, well, you work your way up. <laughs> you eat a bigger piece of steak. You put more chicken on your plate. I'll be honest. I don't love Turkey. I don't love Turkey. It probably makes me un-American, but I don't. And you better believe on Thursday, I had a lot of Turkey on my plate. And when I finished eating all that Turkey, I was like, okay, now if I decide to eat some dessert, I'm going to, you know, regulate how much I'm going to eat. Cause I know there's just a finite amount of more food that I can put into this body, but I'm going to enjoy every bit of this pie. And so not surprisingly, when you get women sleeping, when you better balance their blood sugar, when they're more satiated, they sometimes will start to see improvements in body composition, how they feel, you know, their energy levels, et cetera. 
But let's spend a little bit of time talking about nutrition, because this is an area where we have to unlearn some bad habits. You know, one of them is the lack of animal-based protein. And I know all of us are on the same page about the superiority of animal-based protein, but why are carbohydrates such a triggering topic? I feel like every time we touch this, it ends up exploding. We hear it too. Women will say, I went low carb and my hair fell out, or I went low carb and my thyroid got slower. I went low carb and these bad things happen. And I would say, Maria, we could pretty much confidently say 99.99% of the time, it's because you cut out carbs and you didn't replace them with anything and you were too low calorie. And so first of all, we want to kind of say eating low carb is not a bad thing and it's not going to bring down this cascade of poor health problems, regardless of what you're hearing from women who claim that that was the cause of their issues. So there's that. But then also that we talked about as estrogen is changing, you know, we have estrogen expressing in the lining of our intestinal tract in the parietal cells of our stomach. As we lose that estrogen, we actually lose our tolerance for carbohydrates. It goes down and women don't want to believe that anyone who says at 42, I haven't changed the way I'm eating and yet I'm gaining weight. It's kind of like, well, that's your proof right there, right? (laughs) That, you know, you just don't have the same capacity for the same macros that you carried through your twenties and thirties. And when we look at part of why that is, it has to do with the sink that is our muscle, right? And so everyone can accept that after 30, our muscle starts to decline. It accelerates dramatically around 45 and really hard in our fifties. That is just a big depository for carbohydrate tolerance. So when we are in our thirties and we're all full of muscle, we have a better tolerance for carbs. Now decline that muscle and decline the estrogen. And it's this double whammy where carbohydrate tolerance has to shift. Women just have to accept that. It's not, you know, a popular thing and no one has to always be ketogenic. We're not necessarily fans of the keto diet. It's more, you know, eating for the metabolism that you have in midlife. And that means prioritizing the protein in order to optimize muscle, which newsflash will actually help you handle carbohydrates better in the future. Yeah. There's also gradations of low carb, you know, there's, there's 20 grams a day, 50, you know, under a hundred could still be considered low carb. So I think there's ways to work with that. And, and we just like really do want to focus on the protein and, you know, Cynthia, I will often see this used to be me and that would be like you would go out to lunch with friends and you just have this big beautiful salad with some dark leafy greens and some carrots on top and maybe just like a really small side of chicken I don't know if it was four ounces that would be a fairly good amount of protein and you know just like maybe not a lot of fat yeah there was a dressing on it and I you know we eat that way and we think oh it's so virtuous (laughs) I'm doing so good but you know then like I don't know. I, two hours later, I was looking for probably for some more fat and protein. And so I just think that, you know, to get that protein in and just to kind of go back to something we we're about before is it can be hard to get that protein in if you are filling up with these other virtuous, healthy foods. And we all have like different kind of levels of, you know, and I know, you know, this, can we tolerate vegetables? I can, my son can't, you know, our level of health can kind of dictate that. But even if like you can say eat vegetables, they don't bother your gut. You don't have IBS or anything like that. If you are focusing on that salad, on that vegetables, and this was a little bit hard for me to come to grips with. And I think it's hard for a lot of people, including my husband to come to grips with is no, okay. It's not that you can't 
you know, have those things. You can, but you have to just put them on the side counter for now. And just like put them aside, focus on protein, really be intentional and prioritize that. And then you can kind of add those things on more like a side dish. So again, I know it sounds like, oh, like, oh, is she really like, is that bad what she's saying? Because like that stuff is healthy, right? Like having a big old kale salad is healthy and, you know, having a raw carrot, it's going to detox your estrogen, although there's nothing really, there's nothing really magical about carrots. It's just fiber, but (laughs) I don't want to hate on carrots, but it's just like, we can't be eating copious amounts of plant foods and expect to be meeting our daily protein requirement. So I think that's a really good point. And much to your point for every person out there, we've got our own bio-individuality, our own threshold. Sometimes it ebbs and flows. Three years ago, I only tolerated meat. I'm grateful that nine months later, I could start having some vegetables, but my body even now, like I love Brussels sprouts to a point that's probably a little bit absurd. I had three (laughs) days of Brussels sprouts and today I got up and my gut was like, nope, can't do that again today. And so really leaning into foods that make us feel good for the same reason why, as an example, kale kills my gut, too Mm. much oxalates for me, spinach, Mm. kale, celery. Yes. They're intrinsically healthy. They don't work for me and that's okay. So, you know, finding what resonates, what works for our bodies is really important, but starting with that protein piece first, like when I go to restaurants, I am that person. If I don't get enough protein on my salad, I will ask, can I have a side of shrimp? Cause that's usually yeah. something that can be cooked fairly quickly. Yeah. I have a little bit more, pro- there's no shame in asking for that. In fact, I was in Chicago a few weeks ago with a colleague and we went to this one restaurant a couple of times because we were staying in an Airbnb and, you know, sometimes in the evening, we didn't feel like driving around going to different places and true food kitchen has great options. True food kitchen has very small protein portions. So wow. it became this running joke that I would get this particular meal And I would always ask for double protein and they graciously did it, which ended up working fine. So don't be afraid to, when you're at a restaurant or you're at a family member's home, you know, push that protein lever because the Mm -hmm. benefits as a middle-aged woman are really important. So it's not just the protein, but it's also the strength training piece. And I think a lot of women are afraid of weights. I don't know how else to put it, where they think that, you know, those five pound dumbbells are going to help them build strong calorie burning muscle toned. Yes. Yes. They (laughs) want to be toned. So let's talk. I know this is something we all talk about, but let's focus on this because this also, you know, impacts your carbohydrate threshold. It impacts your body composition. I mean, it impacts many things, but the physiologic piece about insulin sensitivity is why I think muscle mass and building muscle is super important. Yeah. And I think women have an issue with strength training, similar to the reason why they have an issue with animal protein. It feels masculine, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of people think that if it's not very appropriate to go out to a restaurant and ask for double protein. And I remember when Marie and I were at a conference. I was hoping you were going to tell that story. (laughs) A medical conference in San Diego about three, four years ago. And she was in shock and awe as I sat there ordering a la carte meats off of the menu and just saying, could I just get this? I'm not going to eat the kale salad or the, you know, baked potato or whatever. So could I just get this a la carte? And we started doing it and having fun with it. And this guy finally, you know, we're in Southern California, it's vegan heaven. Right. And this waiter looks at us and he's like, you ladies are so cool. <laughs> we just cracked up because we were like, probably not the norm to be eating like this. But, you know, strength training, I think is the same issue, right? Women are scared they're going to get bulky and newsflash ladies, you don't have the hormones to get bulky at this stage of life. It's not going to happen no matter how hard you try. 
And it's not something that we're accustomed to. Any of us can walk into a gym, see an elliptical or a treadmill or a bike and think I can do that. I know how to do that. But, you know, jumping on, you know, a hyper or, you know, knowing how to do back extensions, knowing how to do squat rack and, you know, look at lat pull downs and things like that. It's intimidating. It's intimidating. You don't see many women doing it. I think now we have a generation of 20 and 30 somethings who are changing the script on that, which is wonderful. But for those of us 40s, 50s and beyond, it's not in our wheelhouse. It's not something we're comfortable with. In addition, we've got this change in hormones that actually does change our joint mobility. It changes Hmm. our tendons and our ligaments, our connective tissues. You know, like me, I came into this stage of life with a lot of sports injuries. And so women who do take the plunge and try and do it often end up hurting themselves because they aren't ready for this stuff. And, you know, we're all looking for a bit of an easy button. We'd like a quick fix. If we just walk into the gym and start lifting heavy things, that should work, right? And it's not that simple. We do need to understand movement patterns to have our range of motion evaluated. Maybe undertake some physical therapy if you're not quite ready for it yet. And then we say, hire a trainer. You know, you're not, none of us were born with a guidebook on how to strength train. That's not something that we can expect. We all should know how to ride a bike, but that comes from, you know, early childhood. But that part of thinking that we have to ask for help makes it even further more uncomfortable, right? And so getting a trainer, you know, having what we call a planned progressive program, you know, women will, I think with the right intentions, unfortunately take the wrong approach, which is dialing into a YouTube video and following a random workout on Tuesday and then finding another one on Thursday. That's not going to work, ladies. It's not going to work. We need to kind of follow this planned progression of stressing the muscles at different loads and different volume and working towards a goal. And, you know, if women could just accept the fact that none of us sent our kids to kindergarten and expected them to read, they had to learn their letters first. It's the same thing with strength training. We need to go in, understand what we're capable of, what needs a little assistance, get some guidance, be evaluated and have a plan that we follow. Once women and Marie and I encourage our ladies to do this all the time, they do that. They're like, this is so much more fun. You know, they're actually enjoying strength training when they understand that it's okay to be a newbie. It's best to start at a beginner program, but you don't stick with those five pound dumbbells forever or body weight. You do need to move up. And that hauling heavy iron kind of makes you feel like a superwoman. I mean, I have a 55 pound puppy. I still pick him up every day. And my kids will be like, mom, that is so unnatural. Put him down. And I'm like, (laughs) but don't you see, like I can pick him up right? I can unload the car of all the salt bags and haul them down to the softener downstairs, walking through two layers of my house. You know, it's those sort of functional things that strength training gives us that women aren't appreciating. Now, the fact that my body is toned or tighter and that I have a bigger carbohydrate tolerance and that my inflammation is lower and my immune system is happier. That's all side issues with the muscle, right? We look at it like, Do you want to have to grab onto a grab bar when you lower yourself to the toilet when you're 65, right? Most of us probably say no. So learn to squat, you know, it's basic things like that. But I think it's really interesting because my whole background working in hospitals, seeing people in clinic, I saw plenty of 50 somethings that in the hospital couldn't get off a bedside commode or were so deconditioned their quadricep or their leg muscles were so weak that they had to go to rehab for an extended period of time. And, and I remind people that 
yes, those of us that are able-bodied, we don't even, it doesn't even occur to us that that can happen, but if you don't use it, you will lose it. And it really accelerates in menopause. And so this is why I think all of us really endeavor to make sure people understand like walking is great. And I do encourage people to be physically active throughout their day. What is your feeling on zone two cardio? So the type of cardio where you can speak while you're doing it, the more I learn about it, the more I do it. And the more I've started talking to patients about it, but I think it's important for us to at least touch on that as well. Yeah. I'll, I'll, take that thing. <laughs> I'll take it that one only because I do, I have a very deep competitive athlete background and it was a part of my training for a long, long time. So, you know, zone two cardio, we aren't seeing a big burn number on that calorie counter that by the way, ladies, it's not accurate. Neither is your fitness tracker, but you know, we don't appreciate what it is. And what happens is that too many times we're training at a level that's enough to fatigue us without getting any actual benefit. You either need to be doing this hit sprint training to really stress the heart and redline things, or we need to keep ourselves in this zone two place. But because you can have a conversation or you can breathe through your nose and out through your mouth the whole time, it doesn't feel like we're accomplishing much, right? And sometimes you can do zone two and not even sweat. And then who wants to go to the gym and not sweat? You feel like you didn't do anything. So zone two, I think is really, really important. I think the hard thing is, is fitting it in or recognizing what it is and what it isn't. It doesn't even have to always be on a cardio machine, right? It could be you wear a weight vest and you go for your daily walk. It could mean that you just keep walking hills up and down. For me, I do it on a rower, which is probably one of the more difficult things for most people to maintain a zone two, but I had 15, 20 years of that. A bicycle is another option, but what people don't understand is even a low level strength training day can be zone two. So I say to women, you know, get a heart rate monitor, understand what this zone is for you and try and do your workout by staying in that. That's frequently, you know, you don't need to be maxing out and crushing it in the gym all the time. So then women will say, but how do I fit it in? Right. And we say, you know, do three days of strength training, do three days of zone two. And at the end of one of those zone two days, do a sprint, you know, session and sprint sessions. Anyone who's going to a hit class that lasts 45 minutes, I just, I want to come and hug you and say, no, 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 no. That's not the way <laughs> it's, you know, a true hit session means you are gassed within about eight to 10 minutes. So it doesn't have to be hard, but it does have to be intentional, no differently than the nutrition piece does, right? We can't go five days a week strength training and think that we're not going to impact our cardio respiratory system. We need to kind of be doing both. And, you know, unfortunately, and we have some great voices in this space talking about zone two, but I'll be perfectly honest, they're dudes. They have a ton of time on their hands and their whole kind of platform is their body and their longevity. So yay for you. I love you, Peter Atia. but the fact that you have seven hours a week to do zone two is patently unrealistic for the average person on the street. And I think that that's the hard thing for women is we're hearing this stuff on podcasts and in blog posts. And we think I can't even possibly fit this in. So they don't do it at all. You know, and I think that if women started to realize that 30 to 40 minutes of a zone two session three times a week, and then recognizing that probably one of their strength training days is actually zone two as well, they would be more inclined to kind of program this in and schedule it in. I'm not a huge walker. I live in the land of snow and cold and ice, and I'm not going to get 15,000 steps in during the day. Maria can nail those out 
you know, and listen and do work. And not, <laughs> yeah, but you know, so I have to be very deliberate about getting that zone too. And, and like I said, it's just it's no different than being very deliberate about how you're choosing your food. Do you find yourself struggling to get a good night's sleep? If so, you may be dealing with a hidden mineral deficiency. It is not at all uncommon in perimenopause and menopause to deal with sleep challenges. And we know that one of many contributory reasons for poor sleep can be a reduction in specific minerals that help regulate sleep quality, including magnesium, which is involved in GABA, which is our body's main calming neurotransmitter. We also know that we need potassium to create melatonin. And this is a hormone that is a master antioxidant, but is also utilized to help induce sleep. We also think about things like zinc, which can balance excitatory neurotransmitters like glutamate. And if it's overactive, meaning if your glutamate levels are too high, it can prevent your brain from becoming more relaxed and inducing sleep. And lastly, selenium increases both our deep sleep and sleep duration. All these minerals matter a lot for sleep and any imbalances or deficits can have a major impact on the quality of sleep you get each night. And that's why I love Beam Minerals. They offer a full spectrum mineral supplement that gives you every essential mineral your body needs in the right doses, all in a highly absorbable liquid form. All you do is take a shot of bean minerals about an hour before bed. Don't worry, it tastes like water. And you'll replenish all of your body's minerals in about 30 seconds and give your brain what it needs for deep restorative sleep. I've been using this product over the last several months. I've really been impressed with the improvement in my sleep metrics, which I like to share on social media with my followers. And if you want a simple way to improve your sleep, head over to www.bminerals.com and use code Cynthia for 20% off your first order. That's www.bminerals.com and use code Cynthia for 20% off your first order. At some point, we've all been sold a big fat lie. It's called the protein misconception. So starting in the 1980s, we all believed that more protein equated to more muscle growth. And I'm here to tell you it's a big misconception. This has a great deal to do that our body can only absorb protein that's broken down into smaller building blocks called amino acids. It doesn't matter if you're consuming 30 grams of protein or 300 grams of protein. If you don't have a sufficient supply of enzymes to digest the protein, your muscles will ultimately be unable to use these as vital building blocks. That's why it's crucial you take a high quality digestive enzyme. The one I trust and use myself is called Masszymes by Bi Optimizers. Masszymes is a full spectrum enzyme formula with more protease than any other commercially available product with five different forms of protease. Plus, it contains all the other key enzymes you need for optimal digestion. If you're experiencing bloating, gas, or digestive distress, a contributing factor can be that your body is no longer producing as much digestive enzymes. And you can try Masszymes today, risk-free. They have a 365-day full money-back guarantee and is the gold standard in the industry. Go to biooptimizers.com slash Cynthia. That's B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com slash Cynthia and use promo code Cynthia10 for 10% off of any order. Again, that's promo code Cynthia10 for 10% off any order. 
I think it's really helpful to hear how real world people, you know, we're out there in the space, we're speaking to middle-aged women, but also being very transparent. Like I live in a pretty temperate part of the United States. So during the pandemic, my husband and I get out and walk our dogs in the morning. And so we get to talk and connect and we're in a very hilly part (laughs) of the area we live in. And so we're up and down hills. And my vet was actually surprised. I have a 10-year-old dog and a nine-year-old dog. And she said, wait a minute, you do four or five miles a day walking your dogs. And I said, yeah, but it's good for them. It's good for us. But this is what came out of the pandemic. They were certainly getting walked before they weren't, you know, they weren't getting an obligatory dump in the backyard to do their business. But the point being that you find ways to kind of figure out what's going to work for your lifestyle. We rarely get snow. Sorry, Kristen, we rarely (laughs) get snow. And when we do, everything shuts down in this part of the world. But I would love to kind of pivot and talk about, the role of HRT. I know that we're going to talk about menopause. I want to talk about the Women's Health Initiative and what that has done for an entire generation of clinicians and women who are both fearful of prescribing and taking medications. And I recently interviewed Dr. Amy Killen. I'm not sure if you're familiar with her work, but she's a female biohacker and she's a physician. And when I talked to her last week, she said, we need to start talking about menopause about what actually menopause is. It's a disease state. Yeah. You know, when people oh, wow. get fearful. Yeah. And it's okay, really taking I'm impressed a, because yeah, yeah. very few people come to grips with that. Yeah. And I told her, I said, it really sat with me. I had to really process what she said. And it makes me feel even more empowered to say to women that you might not be taking HRT as an example. You may choose not to, but understanding what's happening behind the scenes that you may yeah. not be seeing that is really, really impactful in your health and your longevity? Well, I would say my hat is off to her because it sounds like she wanted to just wallop people with sort of like a zinger to wake them up. So to that, I actually really agree with. Now, I don't know if I would go so far as to say it's a disease state, but it I would say, and this is just me playing with words and being stupid, it brings on disease-like states. It does. Yeah. I think that's one of the things Krista and I have been so passionate about is educating. And we still get so many women who are like, well, you know, I just, I don't really have any symptoms or my symptoms went away. You know, I'm just thinking my symptoms went away when I, you know, started magnesium or something like that, which is awesome. And I always say, great, we should not have to live with, you know, nagging symptoms. You know, no one should have to endure those things, but that is not the entirety of the yardstick when we come to measure your your health at menopause. It's really not, and it's such a huge distraction. So I'm kind of fascinated with this episode, Cynthia. I'll have to listen to that. Yeah, so, I mean, HRT we think is incredibly important. And Chris and, like, and I like to flip the narrative on its head. And we say to people, what are your risks of not using it? Not, I mean, we don't want to talk about the, well, we do a little bit talk about the risks of using it, but we like to help women. We want to just think differently, not using it. And then that's where we dig into these problems. And I do think that there are some people, like I bet this doctor is going to get a lot of pushback for saying something like that. But there are some people who like, I've been told before, it was a while ago, you're scary. And I'm like, I'm sorry, I don't mean to be, and I don't even mean to be really aggressively negative or anything. It's just that like, I want to wake you up. I wish someone, you know, I was just thinking this morning as I was making my breakfast, I said, I missed my muscle building window. I 
was either distracted, raising children, lazy, unaware in my say late thirties, early forties. Like I missed that. Like I am working overtime now to correct that problem. Right. And so I feel like a lot of women, if they don't wake up, are going to miss the opportunity to use HRT. So yeah, we're, we're very passionate about it. Yeah. I wouldn't even say that I wouldn't use the term scary. I think that you're straightforward. You know, when I was thinking about the ways that I describe both of you is that, you know, I think about inspiring and empowering and you're straightforward and to the point. <laughs> and I think because I grew up in New Jersey, you know, yes. it's that education piece. We want people to feel empowered, but let's be frank. The informed consent piece is so rarely discussed. Like I was on oral contraceptives, which covered up PCOS. I had that thin wow. phenotype PCOS, which we didn't find out till I was trying to get pregnant. And I remember saying to my GYN a few years ago, I was like, I wonder if that impacted, you know, being on oral contraceptives with a very low estradiol state for so many years. And, you know, I'm osteopenic, which I'm not paranoid about it. It is what it is. But, you know, my peak bone building years I was on drugs that kept my estrogen levels low and probably prevented me from being capable of building more bone. And did anyone talk to us about, you know, informed consent about still these things? Happen. No. Yeah. No. It still doesn't happen. Yeah. I think, you know, Marie and I, we just wrote, we're kind of fired up on the topic of HRT from the standpoint of there's a lot of um, shiny objects right now entering the market to divert women's attention from even considering HRT. And it, it it's, partly a profit model that's being pursued within venture capital and whatnot, simply because there's, you know, I think, what is it? A hundred million women right now are menopausal in the world. And it's a $600 billion market, Maria, financially for Wall Street. So what makes us angry is that it really is only the last couple of decades where HRT has been this no-no. What women do not understand is really at the beginning of the 20th century, when the estrogen pill was first developed, I mean, it was well accepted. This was called, it literally had a clinical diagnosis, hormone deficiency syndrome. And it was recognized as being something contributing to the chronic diseases of aging of women and that we needed interventions or we were going to have this really sick generation on our hand. So for like 40 years, 50 years, HRT was used to literally preserve women's health. It was considered a preventative intervention to help women age healthfully. And so when Marie and I get women who will come to us and say, I want to do menopause naturally. And Marie and I will say, great, because that means dying. Like legitimately, that is what you're asking for is to have a shortened health span with decreased longevity and decreased sort of functional health. So, you know, we look at HRT and we say, you know, given that it was a hormonal deficiency syndrome, it was American College of Physicians, American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, American Heart Association was behind it. It was literally considered all of those important things. So we don't need to get into the WHI, but we can. I mean, it was this horrible study. It was poorly designed. It was poorly interpreted. It had a lot of flaws. Its own investigators have backed away from the conclusions, all of these things. But that yanked HRT out of women's hands about 20 some years ago. And where are we now? Well, we outnumber men three to one when it comes to Alzheimer's. We outnumber men four to one when it comes to osteoporosis and autoimmune disorders. We catch up to men who lead the way with cardiovascular disease until we hit 50. We catch up to them and by 65, we overtake them. 
And are we really living well without HRT when we look at the average 65-year-old is on, I think, 15 supplement, or I mean, 15 prescription medications. So we push back and say, okay, so HRT is the bad guy. And yet with its withdrawal from the market and withdrawal from women's lives, we've actually seen the greatest decline in female health that anyone could have ever imagined over the last 25 years. There's a problem there. And that is where we get really hot and passionate about the HRT piece. And You know, I already intimated my mom was on HRT. She didn't have a uterus. So she wasn't in the arm of the WHI that was using a progestin. She just had Premarin in her system and she was thriving. I remember my mom hitting like 40 and being a different person than the first 10 years of my life. And then she had it taken away from her. And it was unbelievably gut-wrenching to see how poorly her health declined and what happened to her after that. And I don't want that for myself. You know, this isn't a predestination just because we're all going to be menopausal. Newsflash women, nobody gets out of this alive without menopause. (laughs) I don't want that for myself. And I don't want it for any other woman that I know either. And if we're sitting here and we're all working so hard on our appearance and our nutrition and our strength training and all these things, why wouldn't we be considering HRT on top of it? That's the piece that Maria and I just, you know, feel like we need to go to the rooftops and shout about. So, yeah. I think it's so important though, to hear that because the narrative for so long, like I was the baby nurse practitioner when the WHI study came out, even though I was safely in cardiology, I started seeing patients who, you know, all of their HRT was stopped. My mother, all my mother's sisters, all my aunts have navigated menopause 25, 30 plus years, no HRT. You better believe that. I'm seeing the sequelae of all of this. And I get, I almost get emotional when I say this, but one of my aunts said to me recently, I'm so grateful that you are giving women a voice and we are all giving women a voice so that we can make better, more informed decisions because starting them on HRT in their late seventies is not necessarily going to be a benefit, but knowing that cognition is pretty darn important to me. I'm like, when the the hierarchy of things like being cognitively intact is pretty darn important. If you worry about nothing else, brain health, you know, Dr. Lisa Moscone has this amazing book, the XX brain. I highly recommend every woman read this book. I have no affiliation with her whatsoever. I just really like the work that she's doing. When you start to understand the domino effect of what happens as we're losing estradiol, as we are losing progesterone, as we are going through adrenal pause and menopause Mm -hmm. and the impact on testosterone. And I definitely want to touch on testosterone because I think far too many women think if they're going to do HRT, they just need progesterone. They just need estrogen and really talking and speaking to how important testosterone is and finding a provider that's going to prescribe it also a challenge. What have been your experiences when you're working with women? I know you have a referral base, you refer out to appropriate functional integrative medicine physicians and PAs and NPs. Is testosterone still a taboo subject for a lot of your female clients? Are they still fearful? They think they're going to look like Arnold Schwarzenegger. I have to remind No, I think they're actually pretty excited to do it. We kind of have to slow them down because, you know, there is in some circles, Cynthia, just move to like, just rush to testosterone. And, you know, it's our training with our mentors that yes, testosterone, great. All of our providers will do testosterone, but not right away. 
It's like, let's get your estrogen and progesterone in balance. And that's because there's an issue with the receptor. It can kind of interfere and uses the same receptor that estradiol does. And so we just like estradiol, that is the kind of alpha, you know, most important. Yes, progesterone is important too, but it's more like a supporting cast. Um, testosterone important, but let's like, let's get that estrogen and progesterone like working well, you know, at a physiologic level. And then we can add testosterone, you know, three to six, maybe nine months later. So, yeah, Yeah. I think like Maria said, so many are chomping at the bit for it from the standpoint of pellets are a huge thing. And too many doctors take a, an early 40 something who's maybe got a little less libido really wants to focus on the body comp piece. Cause we're still a little competitive with their girlfriends and how we look at the community pool and whatnot. And they get testosterone pellets and it's like, va, va, boom, right. Their husband's like, woo, who's this? And they do still have enough estrogen in the tank that when combined with this excess testosterone and some gym time, it works. Right. And so we'll have women come to us being like, I want that. I want what she's having. And we have to back them down a little bit and say, look, the testosterone isn't going to do all the things. And like you just said, brain health. I mean, I remember when my dad was on his deathbed, the biggest gratitude he had was that God enabled him to keep his brain. His body failed him and five times sideways with cancer and all these other things. He was so happy that he was aware and cognitively intact and still doing the New York times crossword puzzle. Guess what? We need estrogen for that brain, right? It's not testosterone. All the other things that we talked about in the female body and that homeostatic regulator, that's estrogen, not testosterone. So we think it's a wonderful thing. But like Maria said, it just needs to take a second seat, step back from getting our estrogen dialed in first. And, you know, it can have its drawbacks too. And we've seen, we had one woman who was very resistant to letting go of her pellets and was kind of coming at us quite a bit. And this was a client and Maria kind of jokingly suggested to her in a gentle way that maybe this was the testosterone speaking, right? That there's a certain point where testosterone cannot be the best thing for us when we're overdoing it. So yeah, I mean, we're huge fans, but like Maria said, it's, you know, we need to tell women just slow down. It's whenever we hear doctors giving out a cocktail of estrogen, testosterone, and progesterone all at the same time, it's an automatic red flag. And we just, they don't know what they're doing. No. Mm-mm. Yeah. No, and it's interesting. Like I have peers that will remain nameless that have set up pellet clinics and yeah. because we're all entrepreneurs, you know, they reach out because they want support. And I'm like, I'm always happy to support other entrepreneurs, but I just had to say, we have to agree to disagree. Like, I just don't think this is the, maybe it works for some people, but I've seen women with outrageously high testosterone levels. They feel great for a few weeks and then they feel awful for three months. And I just had Sean Tesson on and he is not a fan of pellets at all. So I let him rage slash discuss the use of pellets. And if you're on pellets and you're listening to this, There's no judgment. We just like people to know there are other options. And testosterone, I think, is so misunderstood because I feel, based on what I've read, that testosterone sometimes is that missing piece that can really be impactful for changes in body composition. That, you know, when you're working with a provider and they say, Oh, I don't give women project, I don't give women testosterone. I always say, I think if you're optimized otherwise there can be a lot of benefits and it can help with libido and it can help with bone and muscle integrity and can help with brain health and it can help with body composition and not in extreme amounts. We don't need a lot of testosterone, but certainly testosterone can be very beneficial. 
Before we end our discussion today, I would love to touch on some of the common pellets or one of them, some of the common things you see women utilizing, whether it's supplements or medications in this stage of life that you think maybe they should have a pause about, and then also considering testing. I know we all use the Dutch and the GI map and we're huge proponents of it. Let's kind of end the conversation there because one thing that I find as an example is you know, there are well-meaning practitioners out there that love DIM. And I'm like, Jim, DIM is great. I knew you were going to say DIM. I DIM was like great. on the tip of my tongue. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I was like, DIM is a great supplement and with the proper individual. So yeah. let's talk about some of the things that like people will come to me. I've inherited patients and I look at their list of supplements. And I'm like, you don't need DIM. Why are you on DIM? So, or they're taking it for too long, right? It's like, mm-hmm. I had one woman, she was like taking it for over a year, right? Gosh, well, I would say would be just your kind of hormone balance type supplements that have these proprietary formulas where you know, like you don't necessarily know like the amounts in it, or even if you do know the amounts, some proprietary will list the amounts. There is a formula that I like. I think it's like probably good to take in perimenopause or even good to take if women are not going to do HRT. So it's not like I dislike all proprietary formulas or hormone balance type supplements, but I think the way they're marketed is very uh, disingenuous. Like they're going to, they literally say, there's one company that says, what if HRT wasn't the default choice? Well, it's definitely not the default choice, something lab. I won't say what your name is, but, (laughs) (laughs) and then we've got them saying things like, you know, it's just like, this is good for all of your hormonal imbalances. And then, you know, many, most of them have dim in them. So And that is like the last thing a woman who is like in a late stage perimenopause needs is something like that. So, yeah, I think another one is vaginal hormones. So, you know, women can get, first of all, they can get their own progesterone. Ladies were telling you progesterone is like testosterone. It works until it doesn't. It's not your, you know, where you should put your money, but we'll get women on these suppositories or vaginal creams or vaginal little pearls. What women do not understand, and it's, you know, again, no judgment, it's just for lack of informed consent, really, to be honest, is that vaginal applications of these things are not a systemic expression. And that is a huge thing that women are missing is they're coming to us and they're like, well, I've been on this hormone regimen. And so Marie and I are like always eager to see what some other providers HRT regimen was. And then she lays it out and we're like, you're not even on HRT. Like you're literally just lubricating your, you know, vaginal tissues and clitoris, like that's it. And so that is one that we see frequently, these midlife women thinking that because they were given some sort of vaginal application, that that is actually doing anything for their bones, their brain, their heart. It's not. DIM obviously is a big one. The other one that we see too often is unfortunately botanical or herbals that are antimicrobial because so many people think that they're estrogen dominant, which again, you're not estrogen dominant or that they need to detox all their estrogen. And you might have a functional medicine provider with IFM after their name who thinks, well, it's in the gut. We're just going to clean up your gut. And then they stick these women on these gut regimens that they're still on nine months later Meanwhile, they've wiped out their microbiome and they come to us and they can't figure out why everything's gone haywire. And it's like, holy buckets, we need to kind of dial this back. These were short-term interventions. They should be very targeted. You should have known why you were on it. Hopefully you knew exactly what you were addressing, you know, whether it was Giardia or a parasite or some H. pylori or something like that. 
But that extended supplementation and these incredibly broad spectrum protocols are really problematic to women's health. And nobody wants to age having to take your pill popper and put 15 things in it every day. You know, that's just not normal. So we would say to women, you know, aside from the hormones, if you're on this extended supplement regimen, you cannot out supplement hormonal deficiency, period, dot. And there's a good potential that many of the things that you're on are actually doing harm. Oh, I think that's such an important point. You know, again, with good intention, I think some of these antimicrobials, and I think about berberine as being one of them. Berberine has a lot of benefits. I took a bit of berberine around Thanksgiving and I have to remind myself what berberine does to my gut is it gives me digestive upset because it's a potent antimicrobial. Yes, it helps with blood sugar and you know, taken every once in a while is not a big deal. But for the same reason that you're saying, like, we forget that some of these supplements have multi, they're multifaceted, they have the ability to treat and address multiple things. And so again, for full transparency, took a little bit of berberine and, you know, two days later, my gut was like, time out, no more. You can't, you just don't tolerate it. But I would love for you to let listeners know how to connect with you. I know you both have an amazing program, you're both active on social media with a little bit of snark, which I appreciate because I do that to myself. <laughs> well, not, too my not too much. Hopefully not too much. No, no, no. I always think it's a good amount. Like I always say, you know, finding the appropriate amount of snark that's not directed at anyone, right. except I did poke fun of a male physician the other day, but that's okay. In the context of waking as a normal function of aging, that made me very angry. With that being said, let my listeners know how to connect with you both outside of the podcast. Yeah. So they can just find us wise and well on Instagram. And then that's the name of our website as well as wiseandwell.me. And then we have a mighty network group. Kristen can talk about that. Yeah. So we have a standalone community that's open and free and you can find it in our profile and our Instagram profile and the links in that, but it's hosted on mighty networks, which if you're not familiar with, you know, there's no feed, so to speak. There's no friending. There's no advertisements. There's no nothing. It's really just a place for Maria and I to put some long form content, be able to engage with women. That's not Instagram comments and DMs, you know, we have it categorized by topic. It's very, very robust. I think people come in and they don't realize how much is there. We're right now releasing our very snarky, not too snarky, but frustrated series (laughs) on how menopause has become big business and ladies, you are the prey and there are predators out there. And we (laughs) want women to have that informed consent. If you're going to choose supplements and oils and things like that. Just understand what it is that you're then not choosing. You know, you're not choosing to protect yourself with HRT and that's perfectly fine. If that's your choice, we just want women to understand that don't get distracted by shiny objects. Your algorithm is probably bombarding you with new products in Instagram and Facebook. They're not all what they're made out to be. And we just want women to understand why. So our mighty network community is one of those things where we really just get into the depths of that stuff. Well, thanks, lady. It's really been a pleasure to connect with you both. Thank you for your advocacy. Thank you for your transparency. It really makes a difference in the space. Thank you. Thank you for having us. We enjoyed it. If you love this podcast episode, please leave a rating and review, subscribe and tell a friend. Just as you carefully choose the cut of meat or freshness of produce that you cook at home, you should carefully choose chemical-free cookware that provides a healthy and safe cooking experience. 
The materials in 360 cookware are safe, sustainable, and of the highest quality. Their cookware is 100% free from any toxic chemicals as the company produces quality stainless steel cookware and bakeware without added chemicals, and all are manufactured in the United States. It's also the leading manufacturer that equips kitchens with cookware and bakeware that are free of all of the toxic chemicals and coatings, including PFAS, Teflon, and ceramic. And the best thing is that when used properly, the product's construction provides nonstick properties in a product that can be passed down through generations. Go to www.360cookware.com and use code CYNTHIA20 for 20% off your first order. Again, that's 360cookware.com and use code CYNTHIA20 for 20% off your first order. We've been using their products over the last several months and have really been pleased with not only the durability, but ease of cleanliness.